Attention architects and creative minds, get ready to supercharge your brand with Build Your Brand, the podcast that's unlocking the secrets of branding success for creatives. Hey there, it's Mark Arlapage, founder of Entree Architect, and I'm inviting you to join my friend, architect marketing expert, Jeff Eccles at Build Your Brand Podcast, where he explores the captivating stories of the world's top brands and transforms their lessons into powerful moves for small firm architects and creatives like you. In season one, Jeff shares the thrilling tale of Southwest Airlines, where he dissects their journey to the summit and distills it into strategies tailor-made for you. It's important to keep in mind that companies like Southwest compete in the real world, just like you, and face real-world challenges, just like you. You might be surprised at how similar those challenges are to the struggles that you grapple with on a day-to-day basis. Don't miss out on your blueprint for success. Subscribe, tune in, and let's build your brand together. You may have noticed that the very best brands in the world are also known for having somewhat unique corporate cultures. That's often the glue that holds everything together when they encounter those rough spots. We don't do it because it inconveniences the passengers to whom we are primarily dedicated, the short haul, uh, frequent flyer. Follow the link in the show notes to subscribe to Build Your Brand today. Remember, no matter the size, the journey's the same. Your brand's journey to the top starts here. Entree Architect community, welcome to the backstage area of Context and Clarity. Every Thursday afternoon on Context and Clarity Live, Catherine McPhail and I and our live audiences that are joining us from all across the internet, we get to talk to a special guest to search for clarity around the things that matter most to you, the architect, no matter what your context is. You may be the employee of a firm that's dreaming of doing your own thing. Or you may have had your own firm for a year or 10 years or 20 years, and you're starting to rethink or reimagine what that firm could or maybe even should be. Every week, we cover topics that fall under the broad umbrella of the business of architecture. And they're all the need-to-know topics for the success of entrepreneur architects just like you. If we've never met before, my name is Jeff Eccles, and what you're about to listen to is the audio recording of a conversation that my co-host Catherine McPhail and I had to break down this week's Context and Clarity live conversation. So thanks for joining us as we share our biggest takeaways and look for ways to apply what we heard in the Context and Clarity live conversation to our own businesses. In this episode of Context and Clarity, we talk about the future of the profession of architecture the role of the small architecture firms in that future. And we talk with Emily Grandstaff Rice. As we're recording this, we're headed right into the Hanukkah celebration and right before Christmas and then Kwanzaa. But I know that because of our production schedule, you're listening to this sometime after the holidays. So I'll just say Happy New Year. I hope 2023 is off to a great start for you. Before we took our holiday break, I said that I know many times that I take for granted just how much is really going on with context and clarity and in the Entree Architect community. And sometimes we don't do a good job of sharing that. So here's a new format that we're working on. 
This week, we talk more about what we've learned about ChatGPT and the implications for AI on architects. We talk about what Elon Musk is doing at Twitter and why. We talk about rethinking the way that we teach, the way that we learn, and the way that we work. We also talk about the discussions that we've had every morning at 9 a.m. Eastern on the Clubhouse app, and then again at 4 p.m. Eastern in our Context and Clarity conversations in the Facebook group. This week, we've been talking about the future of the profession of architecture and the role of small firms in that future. We've been doing that all week because all of those conversations led up to our Context and Clarity live conversation with Emily Grandstaff Rice the 99th, but only the sixth female president of the American Institute of Architects. I think that's important to note. Before we get into it, though, in case you're new around here, thanks for giving the Context and Clarity podcast a try. And second, you may not know that every weekday morning we kick Context and Clarity off with what we call our coffee talk at 9 a.m. Eastern on the Clubhouse app. It's an hour where you can speak. Clubhouse is a voice-only social app where we can hear your voice, but we don't see you. There's no posting of anything. It's just conversations, and I think it's a really cool way to connect. We have the Context and Clarity Club there inside Clubhouse, so all of that happens before we ever get into our daily Context and Clarity conversations at 4 p.m. Eastern every weekday in the Entree Architect Community Facebook group. Those are the two places where every day, architects just like you gather to dig into the topic of the day. You can ask questions. You can answer questions and share your experience. You can really bring your experience and your curiosity to the conversations about the business of architecture. And of course, that brings us all the way back here where we recap Context and Clarity Live. That's the live stream interview show that goes out to Facebook LinkedIn, Twitter, Twitch, and YouTube. So in addition to everything else that I've mentioned here on the podcast, we'll continue to give you our hot takes on those interviews. In this episode, Catherine and I will share our takeaways from our Context and Clarity Live interview with Emily Grandstaff Rice, the 2023 president of the American Institute of Architects. What's different about this episode is that Mandy Freeland was my guest co-host for the conversation with Emily. And Catherine joins me here backstage to talk about that and also the other topics that we cover. Mandy is the CEO and Principal Architect at Mandy Freeland Architect in Bakersfield, California. And she's also the Vice President of the Academy for Emerging Professionals for AIA California. As I said, Catherine McPhail joined me for this episode backstage and for our new format. Catherine is an architect and a podcaster in Fairhaven, Massachusetts. In addition to Context and Clarity, Catherine hosts Talking Home Renovations with the House Maven, and she's the CEO of Demios Architects. Okay, I'm looking forward to giving you a bigger view of what's going on in the world of Entree Architect. So let's go backstage and listen in as Catherine and I talk about a week of Context and Clarity and our conversation with Emily Grandstaff-Rice, the 99th, but only the sixth female president of the American Institute of Architects. I told you about that project that uh, one of my teams of students was doing, I think, 
the um, AI disrupting gaming design. Three of the students, their, their project uh, that they pitched at Shark Tank last week, I think, um, was about gaming, gaming design and bringing AI. So you've got like the the different AIs that we see right now where, you, you know, you, you type some words and it, it creates 2D images. Mm-hmm. Um, and now, of course, last week, we you and I talked about chat GPT. Uh, you've got that AI. So their, their project was about bringing AI and basically 3D, the ability to use AI to create 3D worlds to gaming. It was, it was interesting. I mean, they, they laid out some, some good case studies, you know, they, they compared like grand theft auto something, whichever number it was, I don't know, to some game about star Wars, you know, in the grand theft auto, it took like six years and $200 million and, you know, whatever, you know, 300 people or something working on it. It's one of the biggest gaming hits of all time. And then the Star Wars game, uh, it was like 800 people on six continents and $400 million in eight years or something like that. It was, I mean, it's huge, huge numbers, you know, resources and time. And it was a flop. Like it didn't make any money at all. Then they talked about Fortnite, which is a little bit different, right? Uh, you create Grand Theft Auto 3, and then as soon as that's released, you're working on Grand Theft Auto 4, you know, and so on and so forth. And Fortnite, because it's online, I think they average like 200 million users, but you see this. So they have this nice graph, you know, it shows, you know, here's 200 million users or here's how it's, how it's grown over time. And every time a new update rolls out, they get a spike in users. Mm -hmm. And then after a fairly short amount of time, it falls back to normal, if not below, then it comes back up to normal. And then every once in a while, they get a great big spike, you know, stuff like that. And so their idea was, um, by using AI, they can, they don't have to have updates. They don't have to, you know, put out version three and then immediately start working on version four because it's continually updated. And the updates are actually driven by the user's input, the choices that they make. And, and you know, maybe they have the ability to type words in or whatever. And it it reminds me, every time I hear them talking about it, it reminds me of that TikTok where Neil deGrasse Tyson and the guy that he does the show with, whose name I never remember, they talk about what if what if we were in an elaborate simulation, because that's essentially what their what their project was about was an elaborate simulation, not of the human experience, but of you know some game. I know. Well, that's that's it, right? I know I've talked before about how when my kids were young, my older kids were young, Sims. Well, when right. I was, before I had kids, SimCity was something I would play. So you could mm-hmm. add a dump in an area of town and everybody would react in a certain way. Yep. And it was fun. But then, you know, it went to Sims. So then it was just the Sims in their house. And they, you, if you didn't let them go to the bathroom, they would just go right there in the kitchen. You know, stuff like that. If you weren't nice to your Sims. Which I felt like, hmm, maybe. Anyway, so now I think we were, at, and then I used to say back then, we were in a high definition. What if we're in a high definition Sims game? And then now I'm not the only one saying it. So that makes me a little nervous. I, I don't mind my theories if I'm the only one saying them. But if other people start agreeing with me, that gets a little much. 
I know this isn't the topic of this week. It was the topic of last week. But you look at at the chat GPT, which is just like rock people's brains. And I've I've spent a little bit of time this weekend researching and, and trying things and listening to other people talk about it, to sort of get my head wrapped around how to use it and how it will be used and, you know, all this stuff. And, and, you know, the thing that intrigues me the most about it is how it's a tool, right? It's what we talked about last week. It's a tool. So how do we best use the tool? I saw a great TikTok by a, by an English teacher that was talking about it. She's talking about her next semester, her students will read a book, a novel. Yeah. Yeah. And then it'll be generated by AI. Like they'll, and then they go out and dissect it and break it apart again and then come up with, that was an amazing idea. And I thought, you know, that's the, I think at, at its heart, you know, we're on this, this precipice of the, the tools are completely changing. Mm-hmm. And it's, you know, we talk, talk about this in terms of architecture going from hand drawing to CAD to BIM, like we talked about last week. Mm-hmm. I think this is a an even bigger leap because... Yeah. You know, all of a sudden, depending on how you look at it, oh, this thing can write papers for me. And that's going to destroy education because now kids don't have to write papers. Well, as it turns out, Google has a tool that'll catch AI-generated papers or whatever, which, by the way, don't use it straight out of the box for your SEO because it's if you if you run it through the Google, I forget what the name of it is, it comes up as like 96.7% false. So Google's already able to detect it, which is no surprise. Like they, it's not like they didn't know chat GPT was coming. I would be absolutely astounded if Google doesn't have their own product that they're working on right now. I mean, that I would, it's sort of like, to me, it's like Elon Musk. I'm going to be really, really disappointed if whatever the heck he's doing at at Twitter right now Mm -hmm. isn't, isn't either him just saying, well, you know, for, forget all of you. I'm just going to mess with you. I am just mm-hmm. here to just mess with you and, you know, drive you crazy. It's either that or he has some kind of crazy sinister plan to, to you know, destroy something or run it into the ground or whatever. I'm going to be absolutely disappointed if this guy, <laughs> as as smart as he's supposed to be, if he is really just this tone deaf and is and this stupid and you know if if what i'm seeing in front of me and perceiving in front of me is actually reality like this guy's an idiot i'm going to be super disappointed mm, well get ready jeff <laughs> well maybe maybe that's my lot in life but but i also think you know i'm going to be super disappointed too if we find out that Google and everybody else doesn't have their own AI that's already running or, you know, that that's some sort of uh, deeper version than chat GPT already. But this is no surprise to people in that world. So, no, I'm sure um, it's not. But but, you know, back, back to the education and people talking about, you know, this is going to change it. I think we do need to think. I mean, you know, I think this, but we do need to rethink education on all levels at this point, not just because of, you know, Google has the tools to tell whether or not that was AI generated, but like that English teacher is 
doing. I mean, she's fully embracing the fact that this is a tool that's out there that kids are going to use. Yeah. How do you use the tool? To me, that was made so much sense and she wasn't freaking out about it or anything. And it's similar to what Emily actually said during your show last week, um, during your show, was that there's a lot of grunt work that goes along with architecture and that if somebody else could do the grunt work is spending what she said, you know, what, a year on a door schedule, door and hardware schedule. Is that a good use of her time? You know, so that's the same. That's the way I feel about the tools that are coming out. And there's a lot of stuff that we do that other, like a a machine could do. Yeah. And we don't, we could do something else. That's more life-changing for people. When she brought this up, the, the first thing that went into my head that came into my, my mind that I didn't bring up, but it was when I was what two years out of school or something like that, I worked on a hospital. It was a hospital for the Cook County Correctional System, which is uh, Chicago. So it was basically the hospital for the Cook County Jail, which is enormous. And I'm like 20, 24 years old, 22 years old, whatever. And my task on that project was all of the interior openings. So doors and windows on the interior. Wow. Somebody else had exterior stuff, right? And so I, I learned a ton. I mean, it was, in a way, it was very, very interesting because it's like you have all these these impact uh, codes and fire codes and that have to do with glass and, and different locking mechanisms and so on. But when I think back about that, we use the oversized sheets, the 30 by 42 sheets, right? Like mm. paper, right? Bigger than the 24 by 36. So the 30 by 42 sheets, I had something like six full 30 by 42 sheets of just door and window schedules. Yeesh, that sounds so much fun, Jeff. Oh, it was, it was horrific. Mm. And, you know, and of course this is pre-BIM, right? This is, we were using audio AutoCAD back then, but, but, you know, you think about what's happened in the profession since then. So a very simple example is, well, if we had been using Revit, let's say some BIM software, Mm-hmm. Then all of a sudden, those schedules, at least the structure of them and and whatever we put into the different families for the doors and the openings in there, the schedules start to be filled in. But back then, so this would have been like 1993 or four or something like that, I I drew lines, right, on in AutoCAD to create these grids and put mm. text in all of those squares. Yeah, I remember that. Yeah, and it, and just an insane amount of time documenting what's, you know, what's the swing of the door, uh, which class of glass is this, you know, in this particular opening, et cetera. It, it also makes me think of another student project from uh, Shark Tank last week was a group of students that said, you know what, and, and they went through like Archonnect and other other architecture forums and found people talking about how much of what they did every day was sort of grunt work, you know, like Emily said, and how much of it was what they felt they had been trained to do or they aspired to do or anything like that. And they, they came up with this idea. And to me, it was, it was kind of fascinating because we had never talked about the 80, 20 rule. We had not, I had not talked with those students about Pareto's principle. That's surprising, Jeff. You love that principle. I I do. I, I do love it. But I think this is proof of it, right? Because what they came up with is that about 20%, right, from all of their research and their different ways of trying to determine this, 
about 20% of what architects do is highest and best use, right? It's what I went to school for. It's what I really love to do. It's, you know, that type of thing. And 80% yeah. is, is the grunt work as Emily described it. And so their project was about pulling the different softwares together through APIs, pulling the different softwares together as a plugin to Revit or whatever your, your tool is so that it can run the the code analysis so that it can run the the cost estimating and the material takeoffs and all of those things so that you can spend your time on that 20% mm -hmm. instead of the 80%, which I thought that was another great project. Yeah. And, you know, I, when we look at these kind of tools and we, we get scared of them and all of that, it immediately makes me think, you know, if we always had this attitude, we're headed back to the Stone Age. Yeah, that's true. But I, it just always goes back to people being afraid of change, I think. And your point that you made about buying a hammer yeah. at Lowe's or whatever, and, and then... I was stuck on hammers last week. I understand. That's what you're, that's what you're, it's very um, in, the, in your face right now. So, but if that's just a tool and it's the same thing as uh, somebody asked my, the head of my graduate program. And I know I mentioned this before, but if we had a computer department and he kind of got upset about it, this was in mm -hmm. the days when we went from hand drawing to computers. Right. And right. a lot of people were really upset about the computers taking over at the time. And he might've been one of them, but he said, well, we don't have a, a pencil department. Why would we have a computer department? Anyway, so he, he was just, his whole point was, it's just another tool. Why would we have a whole department dedicated to it? So I don't know. It's kind of similar, but I'm pretty excited about it. And can I say one thing about education that people yeah. are getting all upset about people writing other people's papers? I think there's more to education than writing papers or producing the papers. There's like le there's learning how to write, and then there's learning about what has happened in the world or how people act or all these other things that you need to be exposed to and understand. I don't think does is really producing a paper that maybe they'll stop having people just write papers to prove they know something. They can still write an exam. They can still write a blue book. Do they still do that? Or are they all on computers now? Oh, they're all on the computers now. Or you could make a podcast for a final project, or you could do some other sort of thing to prove that you understand the material. But the whole idea of writing a paper, I think, is to understand how to write a paper, but maybe we don't need to anymore. Just like with lettering that you brought up, that she brought up, and that's irrelevant, and that I've had my own, you know, graduate school trauma over that. And it doesn't matter anymore. I thought, I thought that was also interesting what she said about lettering being the first uh, as part of the assimilation. So we're all the same. I've always considered myself a bit of a cultural bridge in this profession. When I started uh, as a senior in high school and I got a job in an architecture firm, a small firm, I might add, um, the first thing that I had to do was learn how to hand letter. Um, literally, they sat me down with Ching architectural graphics and I had to learn how to hand letter because that was the way me as an 18 year old, I could be the most productive, which is lettering the drawings. And in retrospect, you know, architectural lettering was really about assimilating. So how could we be like each other to the point where you couldn't determine one person's handwriting from another? Um, I will say another significant part of my job was frankly running blueprints from here to there and everywhere, right? So it was a different practice. We had personal computers, but um, the principals, I mean, I was, I was working in an office that had three people at the time. Uh, they, the, 
the computer was off in a corner. There was one computer for everybody. And basically I did CAD standards because we were building things up and um, just to date myself one more time, uh, the program that we were using was HOK Draw. So they hadn't even upgraded to AutoCAD 13 at the time. We were using the proprietary um, software that, that HOK had developed. So I, I, I come with that, that, I don't know, legacy baggage, whatever you want to call it. Um, and then I look at practice today and it's radically different, right? And that's over what has been the lifespan of half of my professional career. I've never thought about it that way, but I, I see where she's coming from. Yeah, that's the whole idea so that you can't tell. It all looks the same. Yeah, you, you look at it and go, this is this is from an architect. An architect. Yes, then we all do it the same way. Yeah, it's got architect's lettering on it or something like that. I, I had not thought about it, but I think that was... That was that was a really interesting point. You know, you, what you were just saying about education and proving that you know something. I think that's, I think that's maybe that's what I'm hung up on, right? It's when we think about writing papers. To your point, it's like when whatever you learned in school, from high school through through undergrad through grad school, about writing papers. After your, whenever your last graduation day was, how many times have you written a paper or written anything the way that you did in school? You're thinking hard about that. I am. Well, I write a lot. I do write a lot. I write emails. I mean, I guess there's like, I, you can still teach that in school. You can t- still teach somebody proper grammar and the appropriate tone yes. and all the rest of that yeah. stuff. So. Yeah. yeah, I don't know what people are getting so upset about. If I want AI to write my papers, oh, I think it was an AI guy. It was somebody who was interviewing on a podcast, this AI guy who is now calling Steve. Did you see that one? Yes, I saw that one on TikTok. And about uh, attribution of the intellectual property and all that. Yeah. And it was really kind of creepy, actually, how Steve, the AI, he kept saying that I'm here to do this and that. I'm not here to take take authorship of this thing. Right. Like I'm here to help. I don't think for myself and that stuff like that. I was like, oh, it's kind of making my hair stand on in, but, um, mm-hmm. but yeah, I mean, people who are threatened by, he was seemed very uh, non-threatening in his way of just being there to help. I'm just here to help. I think on the writing side, you know, wh- whether you want to go back to, Hey, we're writing blog posts for SEO content for our website. Oh, by the way, anything generated by the AI gets gets flagged by Google and it's not good for SEO. Yeah. And, you know, for if I put my marketing consultant hat on, I say, you need to be writing in your own voice, right? Somebody needs to read this, understand this information that you've written from your point of view and your personality so that, so that the first time that they meet you, they say, oh, Catherine, I feel like I already know you. Right. right. That's that's the ultimate in in that type of writing. Um and you know, the the idea of of testing testing knowledge, you know, I, I run into this all the time. We've we've talked about this before. My undergrad class, I taught that the the period or whatever they call it in college, the hour or something, right before most of them had structures class. And so I could tell they walk in in the morning like, oh, man, they've got a big homework assignment structures or a test coming up because they're just, you know, they look like a bunch of uh, strung out 
druggies because they've been up all night trying to figure out this cantilever, you know, how to calculate the load on this cantilever or something or deflection. And they're only there in body only, basically. Exactly. If that, you know, and I, the, the best advice I have for them is, you know, you, you've got to pass the class, right? It's part of, it's part of the curriculum. You've got to pass the class. But once you get out into the real world, what what you really need to do is understand concepts. Hey, you know, if this thing is hanging out there like that, that's called a cantilever. It has forces that act in certain places. I might want to call a structural engineer, right? Unless, yeah, unless that's all you be, have to know right there. Yeah, you you need to know the concepts and when you don't know, you know, how to move forward, when you need to call somebody else. And that's really what you need to get out of this. And when I, you know, when I teach pro practice to, uh, I mean, depending on which, which level it's at, the first thing I want to do is make sure that what I'm teaching is relevant, is memorable. It's something that they can relate to. If they can relate to it, they're going to remember it. If they Mm -hmm. can relate to it, they're going to be in an office one day and go, oh, that's right. And, And that's going to help them in the future. Should they come out knowing all the ins and outs of AIA contract documents? Absolutely not. Send the hate mail to jeff at entrearchitect.com. Should they understand ethics? Absolutely. Is there any way in the world that they're going to know every every nuance of the AIA code of ethics and professional conduct? No way. They don't have enough life experience. I don't have enough life experience to think through every iteration of this. So the idea of testing knowledge, I think what we need to be teaching is critical thinking, creative thinking, design thinking, uh, those types of things. It's how to think and apply this knowledge, the, this this information. The information is at your fingertips. Now that I have that information, do I know what to do with it? Not even do I know what to do with it. Can I figure out what to do with it? That's what's important. That is very important. Studying for all the exams that I did, however many there were, nine or whatever, I feel like my big takeaway from all that is that I just need to know where to look up the answers to things. I don't need to know everything. Uh, Everything's always changing anyway. I just need to know who to ask or where to look to get the answer and then be able to, yeah, figure out information. So I get it what to do with that information or how to think of different applications for that information or whatever. That's the important thing. Yeah. You you flip that around and somebody was in uh, context and clarity the other day. I went off on one of my, one of my rants about commoditization of architects (laughs) when everything requires an architect required by law to get a permit, whatever that is when, architecture becomes purely commoditized. Are, are there some exceptions to that? Sure. Sure. You know, do you still want Calatrava to design your train station or, you know, whatever? Sure. Absolutely. But for the 99% of architects, boom, commodity done over. Um, and there was somebody, somebody in the conversation that was struggling with that idea. And I get it. Struggling in what way? Well, they, n- not agreeing with that, not agreeing, not with, agreeing you. with the concept, like, oh, all of a sudden, just because they're required, uh, it's going to mean that people understand the value of an architect. No, they don't. Oh, that's absolutely, that is not the way I look at it at all. It, no. That just means the 
projects I don't want to take anymore would be so many more of those that somebody would have to do because it's required. So, and they're not going to want to pay more than a dollar yeah, for it. Absolutely not. Nope. Yeah. Definitely not. And understandably, it's kind of, I feel when people who don't have very much money want me to help them, I have to mm-hmm. figure out creative ways that I can help them because um, there's no way they want to pay or can pay. They might want to, but they can't pay um, extra fees. They can barely pay for what they need to do. And I can understand that. Well, and all of a sudden it becomes the architect tax. Yeah. The answer is not just making people hire us. No, not at all. Not no. at all. And and when you think, you know, you take it back to what we were just talking about and you say, okay, well, if if this really was about me memorizing all of this, the structures, the code, the all of the things, that would also lead to the commoditization of architects because suddenly anybody that can memorize all of this stuff has the same value, right? And it's not about that. It's about being able to apply it creatively, uh, critically, things like that. Yeah, I just, as you know, I just don't really understand the people who complain about people not really understanding our value. I get that right. not everybody understands our value, but the people who we need to have hire us do understand our value or else they wouldn't be paying for it. They value our services or they wouldn't be paying for them. Right. And that, the ones who don't value be. what I have to bring. And that's those have always been the worst, um, the worst projects for me because they don't value what I bring. They don't really listen to what I am suggesting. They already know everything and they just are hiring me for to make the drawings because they don't have time or something. Who wants to do that? I thought it was interesting when we were talking with Emily that she's the second and maybe the last Gen X president of AIA. That that was a little bit intriguing, but she said that she's she's always seemed or, or always seen herself felt like she's the bridge between some time and another time between you know, as the 99th president, as she said, she's not the hundredth and people say, Oh, that's too bad. You just missed it. Like that seems really strange. You know, she's, she's here on the cusp, I think of real change, like it or not. And on, on a lot of levels. And I think it'll be interesting to see what she's able to navigate. It's one of the oddities of, of uh, AIA. Each president has a one-year term, which. Hmm. It's not a lot of time. No, it's not. It's not a lot of time to um, to to make a lot of a lot of impact. Um, I don't think it helps with continuity. But you know, she's she's got some things that she wants to push forward, and and it was um, it was good to hear about those things. And and um, I, I also have a feeling that she's really thinking about it in terms of setting things up for the 100th president, which is Kimberly Dowdell, who will be the first millennial president, uh, president from the millennial generation, I guess, however, whatever the proper way of saying that is. But I think really contemplating what architects should be and what they should be doing and the value of those things in the future is is going to be front and center. Yeah. I I thought it was interesting when you were asking her about small firms and the AIA and she was essentially saying a lot of similar things to what you all were talking about in that in that webinar um, the webinar in the web marathon announcement of the network. Right during the webathon last Monday, Mark Arlapage and I were on from what was it nine nine a.m. Eastern I think until five p.m. Eastern, and we had I lost count of something like thirty eight guests <laughs> pop in uh, over the course of all that time. Mark Zweig, 
who you and I have talked to before on um, Context and Clarity Live. He popped in for a while. I, I love talking to, to Mark. He's 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 very smart. He's very quick on the uptake. He's I like him too. I wish he were my friend. He's someone I'd like to just chat with over dinner or whatever. I think he would be completely uh, up for that. He's a kind heart from all of my knowledge of him. He's a great human being. And he's somebody that loves listening and sharing his experience and his knowledge. And he asked the question while he was on the webathon with us. He said, you know, you're talking about a the goal, the goal of, of the Entree Architect Network is to connect 100,000 architects around the world. And Mark says, that's a big number, right? That's a number that rivals, actually surpasses right now, um, AIA. Mark so Zweig said that. Mark, Mark Zweig said that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So found, founder of Zweig Group, which if you're listening to this, you're probably familiar with Zweig Group. But, um, you know, the the idea of, I don't know what the right word is, but but eclipsing AIA, right? That's That's not the point. Um, the point is not to take anything away from AIA. The point is that AIA is a large organization. And as Emily said, 96,000, um, members now, which, and as you said, that's a subset of a subset, right? That's, that's a subset of architects in the United States, which is a subset of architects in the world, et cetera. AIA is a big organization that that tries to be a lot of things to a lot of a lot of people. They they have the small firm exchange, which is a um, what a knowledge community. They have CRAN, Custom Residential Architects Network, more subsets of AIA. And so, you know, in in route to trying to be a lot of things to a lot of people, they have these these other little initiatives. And that's the big difference between what we're doing, what AIA does, and where we're headed is, we've got a very narrow focus. It's entrepreneurial small firms, and we don't have to say, oh, we have a, you know, a subcommittee or whatever for small firms. No, this is, this is all of us with a very thin blade cutting, cutting through and making a difference for small architecture firms. You know, we're, like I said, we're not trying to, to supplant AIA. We're trying to focus on the things that matter. And that's what this whole week of Context and Clarity has been about, is what matters most to small firm architects. That's where we need to keep the conversation because that's what the Entree Architect Network is going to provide. You know, if if we can bring some critical mass, 100,000, 10,000, um, we need to get to a critical mass as quickly as possible so that we can bring that number to bear on things that matter to us. Maybe it's healthcare, maybe it's insurance, uh, professional insurance, maybe it's BIM programs, maybe it's BIM programs just for the type of work that you do. Maybe it's, you know, something else, but, but without getting to that critical mass, we can't achieve those things. So that's, that's the immediate goal is getting enough people in this network that we can go out and say, Hey, you know, there there are a substantial number of architects from around the world that are interested in this, this very, this very narrow swath. You really need to listen. 
you know, one thing that kept coming up on Monday was that we're building this community and how much of the community means to all the various guests who were on and to those of us in the audience and everything. And for me, it comes down to, for many years, I worked by myself and I worked by myself and I just was by myself. And so now it's so different to be part of this community, but it's also just cuts the loneliness out of it, which is the worst part, I think, about practicing on your own, not having other people to talk to during the day or not having people to ask questions of and all that, you know, just being alone part. So I don't know why I'm bringing that up. It's just because I feel like it was a major theme on Monday that we're not alone anymore, basically, if we're part of this group together. I don't think that can be overstated. I mean, I don't, if I'm honest about it, I'm not sure I really, really recognized it at the, at the level of what it would become when Mark and I you know, back in, in the beginning of the pandemic, when we talked about the fact that people are going to need and want a place to connect. Of course, back then it was, hey, this pandemic's going to last three months, right? That's That was the, uh, that, that was sort of the, the quote unquote expert opinion, right? And so we, we launched this thing that became known as Context and Clarity, which is why you and I get together all the time to record these and to interview people and such. And so we, we started having these conversations and you know an interesting time in history right we've we've lived through 2 years plus of a pandemic and you think about what you were just talking about as a sole practitioner if you take the pandemic out of it it's still a lonely place oh it was yeah working on your own is still a lonely place it's why i used to go and work in coffee shops all the time one of the reasons the other being my my love slash potential addiction to to uh coffee and the smell of coffee and the the whir of coffee grinders and such but but you know I would work in coffee shops because I'm surrounded by a buzz and I'm surrounded you know, literally and phys- figuratively and I'm surrounded by people yeah that's why I worked in co a co-working space yeah yeah I had these people who I worked with who were kind of like my co-workers but we didn't actually do any projects together right I mean, I, I, that's the way I thought of them. Right. And, you know, now we we have Christian Nielsen Palacio that's still, he's doing virtual co-working, I think, what, a couple of times a week now? You know, it it's like you said, it started out a lonely place, being a sole practitioner or a small firm architect. And then the pandemic shuts down the world. And that's one of the things I think about quite a bit now, especially as as we you know, we contemplate the mental health of ourselves and each other and everything that's going on. What in the world would have happened if we weren't able, what would have happened if I didn't have a place to go and talk that, you know, hosting an awful lot of conversations? I I don't know what I would have done if I didn't have, you know, people have called this community, which we're now formalizing as a network. They've called it uh, a place for mentorship. They some have called it a place for uh, for therapy, place for connection, collaboration, all of those things. And so, what we're what we're basically doing is is drawing a line and say, hey, this is this is what this has grown into. Mark, Mark launched Entre Architect ten years ago. That was the celebration on Monday. It was ten years of Entre Architect, and now the next ten years is about building this this network and and beyond. It's about building this network so that we can collaborate and change the world together. And that may mean, that will mean something different to everybody. It may mean 
changing the world from the perspective of your hometown. It may mean changing the world from the perspective of the the profession, and it'll become interchangeable at times. Well, a lot of people were saying on Monday that you've already changed the world, Jeff. You've already changed my world. We've got to keep doing it. We've got to keep pushing it forward. You know, this morning on Context and Clarity on Clubhouse, for example, you think every single day we get there, we go on Clubhouse and we talk to each other. And what do we have to even say anymore to each other? But today we had a great conversation about, um, well, it's right before the holidays at this point. So we were talking about uh, basically getting our getting our gifts together, appreciating our clients and all that. And how do we do that? And we agreed that next year we're going to talk about this in September. So, so then we can all take action and it would be meaningful. It comes up, it's, it's at the, the end of the year comes every year. So we should just maybe get ready for it earlier. So, uh, but it was just nice to know. And in my mind, I knew for a fact that we would be talking next September and that somebody would remember or put it in their calendar because of course, a couple of people said, just put it in your calendar for a reminder. And um, I don't know, these are, and then John Jones had said last week during the web marathon, that we all get each other and that we all have so many similar experiences and intentions and things we drop, things that fall off our plates, like our cards we might be sending out. And then there are other people who inspire us to do different things. And then Matt came on, uh, the sticks and bricks guy came on the conversation. And I thought, Matt, you know what? I could just order sticks and bricks for all my clients and I could do it today. And then I just, so I did when we got off, I just ordered um, a bunch of models for each of um, a model for each of my clients so that most of them have kids. So, you know, it's just something fun to do. Yeah. So, but that's a community that I actually check in with all the time. They're part of my daily life. And now they're part of, they're just part of my life now. So I don't know. It's really, it's really has changed my life. And I don't know that I need a hundred thousand or 999 more friends. You know, if I, if I tie it back to AIA, right. The comparison with AIA, People that are really, really involved in AIA have lots of AIA friends. They serve on committees with them, and you know, go to events and things like that. And and you know, some people are are really involved, and some are not, and some are members, and some are not. You know, all of that. And the same same would certainly be the case as we bring together a hundred thousand architects. And I've been saying this for a couple of months. You know, Mark and I. Mark LePage and I have, have, you know, really thought long and hard about what makes up this community, this entree architect community. And one of the common threads is that we've got, whether you're a sole practitioner or you've got a couple of employees, or maybe you work with 1099 consultants, you know, whatever your context is, whatever, however you formulate your work, that a, a common thread is that you're here because you want to practice in your own way. And for a lot of us that started with flexibility to do things, you you know, take kids to school, pick them up from school or survive layoffs during an economic downturn or have kids or, you know, there's probably a thousand different reasons and we all, you know, we all have our own little combination of those reasons. But at the end of the day, we're just trying to do our best work and we're trying to serve our clients and we're trying to build our businesses. And 
you know, having, having a place to come and collaborate and the tools, which is, which is a huge goal of this is providing the tools to, to build that business and build a successful business. Um, I think that's what, to me, that's one of the biggest differences between what we're talking about and what AIA does is we're talking about doing we're talking about taking action and doing in the business of. And that's another reason that we're not here to take the place of AIA because they're, you know, they're focused on big, big, big initiatives. Some of them climate, some of them, you know, practice and legislation, all those. That's that's not us. We're here focused on doing, building the business of architecture. And that's, you know, if, and I, it, you know, it warms my heart to hear all of these stories, you know, all, all of the uh, experiences of people, you know, I started this because I was, I started coming to context and clarity and people encouraged me and people answered my questions. That's what it's about. It's absolutely what it's about. That is what we're about. That's why we're even here on earth, I think. Yeah. To help other people move forward on their goals and their dreams and things. Just like helping other people. That's that's what it's all about to me. It's the basis of society, isn't it? Right. You know, it's like if you know, I'm I'm not going I'm not going full in political on this, but if you're if you're one of these people that um you know says it's all about me and if it doesn't benefit me then I'm not interested and in, you know et cetera, et cetera. I mean you have to take care of yourself, right? You definitely do. Uh, this morning when I did the morning motivation inside the network, that that was my my encouragement, my challenge to everybody is, especially around the holidays, draw some lines, create some boundaries, take care of yourself, both mentally, physically, uh, but also take care of your business. Make sure you're getting paid, all of those, all of those things. But it can't be all about you. Right, you you've got to put that mask on before you help anybody else. But then, you know, when you're when you're listening to that announcement on the airplane, they say put your mask on first. There's a follow up, right? There's mm -hmm. help yeah, your kid, the help the person next to you. Mm -hmm. You know, assist the flight attendants. It's not put your mask on and and hang on for the ride. It has to be about all of this you know, whether it's the rising ships or whatever, but rising tide or whatever it is. But, but that's, that's the thing that I love about this community. And, you know, I guess this came up, uh, this has come up quite a bit lately is I always, you know, I still always log in for context and clarity and figure this is going to be the day that I'm, that it's just me, right. That nobody else shows up. But, but the fact that people keep showing up and, and not only, not only answer questions, right? Share their knowledge, share their experience, you know, in whatever form it comes, but ask questions. That's, it's a safe place. It's, people see it as a safe place that they can come and ask questions. They can get answers. I think that's the real testament is, you know, you can come and blather on. I mean, I tell lots and lots of stories from my own experience, my own career, but if, if no one's asking a question, then we don't, we're not doing what we need to do. Yeah. Well, I'm really excited to see where the network goes. And do you think uh, Mark would mind if I put entre entrepreneur architect after my name on my signature? 
Or should I, I think I should put that for a while until it catches on. Then I could just put EA after my name. We'll have to, uh, we'll have to work on, on that. Uh, what, what do you do? How do you get that registered? Is it a trademark? Is it a, I don't know. I don't know. Is it official? It's not an official government designation AIA. It just means that no, you're a member. Not. NCARB, right. you can put NCARB if you're a member. Right. So I'm a member of Entre Architect. I'm just going to put EA. Yeah. And Entre Architect is trademarked, which, you know, AIA is, I would assume. Trademarked, I assume. Trademarked, yeah. 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 And NCARB. I don't, I, yeah. I don't know the answer to that. I'm going to start a movement. It'll be a movement of 10 of us probably, but... <laughs> We'll span the country anyway. I don't know when you're listening to this. I've lost track of of uh, when this will come out. But as we're recording this, we're headed into the holidays, and we've we've got a few days of context and clarity. Then our our uh, annual Ontario Architect Community Holiday Party. I hope you take some time to breathe and relax. Find some way to rejuvenate because we we do context and clarity conversation wise every weekday. So you got to pace yourself. It's a long journey. Thanks for going along with us. We'll see you next time. Thank you. All right. Well, now you know what we thought and what we're going to do with what we learned. But what did you think? What did we miss? I really hope that there was some big takeaway from either the Context and Clarity Live conversation or our breakdown here that will help you with your business. DM me on Instagram or Twitter and let me know what your takeaways are. You can find me on all the socials at at Jeff underscore Eccles. That's at J-E-F-F underscore E-C-H-O-L-S. So send me a message and let me know what your takeaway was. And if you want more conversations like this, subscribe to the Context and Clarity podcast where you're listening right now and leave us an honest review and a rating. Those things really do help us to get the message out and help more architects just like you. Oh, and also, now you can follow us on Instagram, as well as get a heads up on everything that's coming up. There, we're at context underscore clarity. In our next episode, Catherine and I will host Context and Clarity Live again with a new special guest and a new theme for the week. And we'll come right back here, backstage again, to break it all down for you again. There's always something new to look forward to. And if you love content like this, check out Gable Media. It's a multimedia network for people like you that care about the built environment. And it's the home of Context and Clarity. With Gable's growing family of podcasts and video channels, I know that you're going to find something there that interests you. You can learn more at gablemedia.com. That's G-A-B-L media.com. And finally, if the topic of today's episode is of particular interest to you, and you'd like to dig deeper into it, then join me over in the Entree Architect Community Facebook group. That's where every weekday afternoon at 4 p.m. Eastern, I host Context and Clarity Conversations. And we take these topics, topics like this, and we dig deeper. We have a conversation in real time to try to find more clarity around the things that matter most to you. So thanks for listening. I hope our time together has inspired you to think about your community, your practice, and how you can support those around you. Catherine and I will be back for our next episode. And in the meantime, I hope you'll join me and the Entree Architect community on Facebook today 
at 4 p.m. Eastern so that we can help each other find more clarity around the topics that matter most, no matter what your context may be. I've mentioned it to my family, but in terms of telling people like, oh yeah, we're doing this, I'm looking for projects. You got anything? I'm not there yet because it scares the out of me. Dreaming of launching your own architecture firm? Well, Well, buckle up for a wild ride with Emerging, the podcast that shares what it's really like to start an architecture firm. Where do we begin? We don't even know what type of business to formalize as. Is it an LLC? Is it an LLP? Like, how are taxes? I mean, the list is astronomical. Season one featured founders Jeffrey, Lexi, and Chris, owners of Level Studio Architecture, are your fearless guides on this unfiltered journey from napkin sketches to a thriving studio. One evening, stumbled into one last dive, we sat at the bar and pondered our postgraduate futures. Amidst the conversation, a napkin became the canvas for our aspirations, sketching plans and milestones, sealing our heartfelt commitment and shared dreams. In drawing down dreams on a napkin collectively, that (laughs) then, you know, in your head, you've rooted like, oh, I'm connected to these people, like long term. The process of starting an architecture practice brims with excitement and challenges, demanding meticulous planning, flawless execution, and unyielding resilience. I kind of hate the term because it's so overly used, but I think everybody knows imposter syndrome. And I think it's it's so real to this day. I, I, I don't know if it's with everybody, but with me, I'm always questioning like us, can we do this? Are we ready to do this? Are we prepared? Can we do it? Did we just decide a name? <laughs> we did it, guys. Oh my the one that God. came out of nowhere. Woo! It came out of nowhere. I liked it. I saw it. Ready to turn your aspirations into reality? Follow the link in the show notes to subscribe to Emerging and chart your own path to architectural success.